0: Welcome
1: to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host, Carl Morand. Today I'm speaking with Jason Brownlee, author of the book Democracy Prevention, The Politics of the U.S.-Egyptian Alliance. From the signing of the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty up to the present, Brownlee describes the four areas in which the U.S. strengthened Egyptian leaders. National defense, coup-proofing, macroeconomic stability, and domestic repression. The book outlines the evolving relationship between Washington and Cairo, from Cold War efforts against the Soviet Union to working with Egypt in the fight against Islamic terrorism. Brownlee explains how repeated U.S. rhetoric of spreading democracy and human rights did not always match its actions, and how strategic interests almost always trumped idealistic goals, both in the past and potentially in the future. Jason, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. If you could, could you start out by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to write this book?
0: yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I have been visiting Egypt and studying it for uh, really since the mid 1990s when I went there when I was in college and i 've now yeah you know, spent several years in Egypt over the course of many trips and One of the things that struck me uh, really back in the 1990s was just how authoritarian the regime of Hosni Mubarak was. For a while, there had been hopes that because there were elections and a multi-party system in Egypt, that the country would gradually become more democratic. And by the end of the 1990s, it was clear that Hosni Mubarak was not taking the country in that direction. So I wrote a a book, my first book, it's called Authoritarianism in an Age of Democratization, to uh, grapple with this problem of how authoritarian regimes would reproduce themselves while holding elections, while allowing some amount of political party competition. And uh, After that book um, came out, I continued to go to Egypt. uh, I was following the opposition to Mubarak, the dissidents and the activists who were organizing, and this is around 2008, 2009, kind of the, the seeds of the opposition that would really come onto the scene in 2011. And I was reading the the literature that dissidents were producing under Mubarak, and I, I was curious to understand really what would, what were their main goals. And one of the things that struck me was that they weren't only concerned about Hosni Mubarak's domestic behavior, his repression, his use of the, the emergency law, which is basically kind of martial law uh, system. They were also concerned about his foreign policy, about his relationship with the United States, and about how he used Egypt's power and influence in the Middle East. And the more I read, the more I saw that these activists and dissident writers, many of whom were on the left wing of the spectrum, uh, some of whom had more of an Islamist orientation, they were very uh, troubled by the U.S.-Egyptian relationship. And they saw the United States as playing a role in the reproduction of authoritarianism in Egypt. This is something that I had not looked at much in my first book, and I realized that it needed more attention. We have a lot of discussions and a lot of studies about American democracy promotion. For example, when people talk about Ukraine or Georgia, these countries that had electoral revolutions in the early 2000s in which the U.S. was rooting for the underdog and maybe contributed to the defeat of autocratic rulers. We don't have much work at least not much really careful research on the U.S. role in the other side of that equation, when the U.S. supports authoritarian rulers uh, in the Middle East and in other regions. And so what I wanted to do in this book, Democracy Prevention, the Politics of the U.S.-Egyptian Alliance, is show the way the U.S. has participated in the reproduction of authoritarianism in Egypt for nearly 40 years, and it's an open question about whether that role is going to change now that Hosni Mubarak has been overthrown, but I think and I hope the book provides readers a solid background for understanding what Washington and Cairo have been doing over many decades and why that is such a major concern for the activists and the young democratic forces in Egypt.
1: You mentioned in the introduction that uh, during the 32 years from the signing of the Egyptian-Israeli Treaty up until the January Revolution, that the United States has strengthened local incumbents in four respects, national defense, coup-proofing, macroeconomic stability, and domestic repression. Could you talk about sort of why you view those as the four main uh, areas of, of influence that the U.S. has had uh, on Egyptian politics?
0: Yes, absolutely. So when people look at the U.S.-Egyptian relationship, one thing they naturally focus upon is the tremendous levels of military and economic aid that have gone from Washington to Cairo over the years. At this point, it's about $60 billion, billion billion with a B, $60 billion over the past uh, 40 years basically, but mainly after 19, uh, 1979 with the signing of the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty and the beginning of the current US aid, military aid package to Egypt, which stabilized around $1.3 billion in the 1980s, and that's the level where it remains. So it's one thing, though, to look at these dollar amounts and see how much aid is going to Egypt. And it's another to say that this aid or this relationship is actually helping Hosni Mubarak or before him Sadat, actually helping them to maintain their regime. After all, if we think about Iran during the 1970s, that is, Iran before the Iranian Revolution, the U.S., was giving or selling to Iran a tremendous amount of weaponry, and it didn't keep the Shah in power. So what I wanted to do is think about the mechanisms through which the U.S. relationship with Egypt actually helps to sustain authoritarianism. And I thought about them in terms of the threats and the challenges that autocratic rulers face. The most common challenge... And the most common way for an autocrat to be overthrown is actually not through revolution. It's not through foreign invasion. It's through military coups. The military is t- tends to be the most cohesive political organization in a country. Uh, it can act on very short notice. And since it's so close to the top of government, it can be very effective at removing the ruler the Egyptian regime that Hosni Mubarak was was ruling was founded by a military coup in 1952, and all of Egypt's presidents have been aware that the military could act against them. So one of the most important ways in which the US relationship with Egypt has helped to maintain authoritarianism is through coup proofing. Basically preventing the or Reducing the likelihood that the military is going to execute a kind of hostile takeover of the government. And military aid and weapons sales are a great way to do that. So it's not just the $1.3 billion this year amount of military aid going to Egypt, it's the access that Egyptian generals get to American technology, American expertise. And this helps to keep the Egyptian military aligned with U.S. interests. So that's the coup-proofing aspect. Um, If we look at other mechanisms in which the U.S. has helped to sustain authoritarian regimes in Egypt, another would be macroeconomic stability, basically economic bailouts. So it's not so much that the U.S. gives... A few hundred million dollars of economic aid each year. I think actually the the benefit for the Egyptian economy is is negligible, and, and some Egyptian economists would say it's it's actually had a negative effect on the Egyptian economy by increasing Egypt's reliance on the United States. Uh, but what has happened is that whenever Egypt gets close to having a serious economic crisis, with that, that could provoke large-scale rioting and social unrest. The U.S. and other Western economies have worked to prevent that crisis and, and bail out the Egyptian economy. And the fear in their minds, the fear in the minds of people in Washington, D.C., is that there could be a repeat of 1977. Now, what happened in January of 1977 in Egypt was that President Anwar Sadat had been told that he needed to cut subsidies for some basic commodities that Egyptians consumed, things like uh, cooking oil and sugar. And when the subsidy cuts were announced uh, as a way for Sadat to try to balance his budget, there was massive rioting across Egypt for, for two days, and it was only suppressed by the Egyptian army. So that's how Sadat regained control was through deploying the military. So in subsequent decades, the United States and other Western countries have been keen to avoid a repeat of these 1977 price riots. And they have helped to boost the Egyptian economy through uh, periodic debt relief when needed. Uh, So that's another mechanism. And then the... um, The last mechanism – well, there's also external defense, um, which I can just mention briefly. One way that authoritarian regimes can be overthrown is if other uh, countries invade them and topple them. And that's something that that authoritarian rulers have to think about. One way that you can help to preserve an authoritarian regime and free up some of its resources is to basically – guarantee that its territorial security is not going to be threatened. And that's something that the U.S. has done uh, for Egypt, basically, by having such a prominent military alliance, there is little risk that a neighboring country, let's say Libya, under Muammar Gaddafi, was going to uh, militarily attack Egypt. The last mechanism that I talk about, it may be surprising that it comes in last, is domestic repression and again if we think about the the Shah of Iran in 19, in the 1970s the US supplied uh weapons uh supplied all kinds of military hardware and the Shah was very repressive internally he had a massive internal security uh police force that uh, jailed people tortured people um killed them brutalized them so Repression is certainly going on, and you do have American weapons sales to these very repressive states. But I, I would argue that actually the the weapon sales are more important for military relations between the two governments than they are for domestic repression, simply because if you look at what the police are using, whether it was in Iran in the 1970s or in Egypt under Hosni Mubarak, the police are not – in, in terms of daily repression, they're not relying on uh, advanced technology. They're not relying on heavy military hardware. You know, tanks are only used in crisis situations, like the price riots of 1977. They're not being used on a daily basis. Uh, same thing for fighter jets. Or you, know, you can go even further. Think about submarines or naval vessels that the U.S. might sell to countries. So. The $1.3 billion that the U.S. is granting Egypt each year in military aid is mainly to purchase these heavy-duty, very expensive, big-ticket items like jets and tanks. It's not to purchase tear gas canisters or truncheons or uh, police gear or or crowd-control equipment. So in that sense, the relationship is... Is not so much about domestic repression, um, which most of the time the government is very capable of carrying out on even a limited budget. And you can see that all around the world. Of course, you can have some very... Very poor, impoverished countries with authoritarian regimes that uh, engage in, in massive and, and very violent repression so but, but it is a, it is a mechanism, it is a way in which the us has played a role in the reproduction of authoritarianism in Egypt uh, is through supply of, uh, equipment which can be
1: you talk about uh, the Sadat and uh, Carter relationship. Do you think uh, you mentioned that for Carter's administration, they viewed human rights as something they'd have to balance with other foreign policy objectives. And at the end of a uh, a quote from that administration, you say that human rights would be defended when not superseded by other foreign policy goals. Do you think they considered human rights as sort of bottom of the list of priorities for foreign policy goals? And do you think they... Potentially saw any uh, benefits to advocating foreign policy? Do you think they considered that? Okay, you know, pursuing uh, human rights in another country will have benefits beyond just obtaining human rights for those people.
0: The Carter administration is remembered as the human rights administration. Carter. gave speeches where he talked about human rights, and there are some who look back on his presidency and think, well, this is a president who really put human rights at the top of the list in a way that other presidents didn't. And it's true that in some areas, such as Carter's policy toward South Africa, toward apartheid South Africa, that Carter was uh, ahead of his time and and behaved more... uh, was was a stronger advocate for for human rights and and equality than other uh, presidents but in general the pattern with carter as with other occupants of the oval office was that strategic and economic interests came first and human rights and uh, considerations of of how foreign governments treated their own people came second and I mean the way to think about this when it comes to Egypt is how did Carter and his administration think about the very uh, brutal and ongoing treatment of uh, Egyptian opposition forces by Egyptian president Anwar Sadat. So Carter comes into office January 20th, 1977, right after the price riots had occurred. So at a moment of acute instability in Egypt. And one of his priorities is Egyptian-Israeli peace, which he pursues to great success over the next two years. But while Carter is pursuing peace, Sadat is repressing his own people. And Carter is aware of this, But he does not put human rights in Egypt at the top of his list. Instead, he focuses on getting an Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty for the strategic reason that bringing Egypt to peace with Israel will help to push back against what the White House perceived as Soviet influence in the Middle East. So this was a strategically driven campaign for bilateral peace between Egypt and Israel. And human rights within Egypt did not enter into the calculations in any significant degree. In fact, when it came time to make tough compromises and close the deal at Camp David in 1978, when Carter brought together Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, when it came time to make tough compromises, Sadat counted, rather, Carter counted on Sadat's ability to enforce his his will, to enforce what he wanted on the Egyptian people rather than responding to the Egyptian people. It was understood, and I discuss this at some length in the book, it was understood by Begin and Carter that they had domestic constituencies they had to respond to they had elections coming up that they had to think about sadat didn't have those he didn't he wasn't going to face a serious election his parliament was stacked with uh, cronies from his party so they thought begin and carter thought well sadat can make the compromises you no know, begin doesn't have to make the compromises it'll be sadat who Concedes and accepts what is necessary for this peace treaty, and that meant retreating from positions that he had taken, that that would have been popular among um, Egyptians and many more outside of, of Egypt. It meant retreating on the goal for a broader Arab-Israeli peace, not just an Egyptian-Israeli peace. It meant retreating from the goal of meaningful autonomy for the Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, And it meant basically ending up with a, a bilateral peace treaty, a separate peace between Egypt and Israel that would leave the peace process in limbo for decades afterward. And so not only was Carter not prioritizing human rights in Egypt, he was actually prioritizing, he and his national security team were prioritizing and taking advantage of the fact that Egypt had a very authoritarian ruler. And they they empowered that ruler, they relied on that ruler to make the the peace treaty happen. And they they expected him to stay in power, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for years afterward. So he was he was their partner. Uh, another way of of approaching it, a, a very different way of approaching it that would have put human rights first would have been to think about a peace treaty that would have been broadly accepted by the Egyptian people and to encourage Sadat to or, – or allow Sadat and his advisors, whom Carter ignored, to allow Sadat and his advisors to put that type of program forward. And instead they did the exact opposite. They – can They came up with a peace treaty that would be uh, acceptable to Menachem Begum's government, and they expected Sadat to impose it.
1: Could you talk about the uh, 1991 Algerian election and the uh, implications it had with Islamists uh, being elected and particularly the fear of the one-man, one-vote, one-time scenario – as it related to U.S.-Egyptian relations.
0: Yes, this was a crucial episode in uh, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East after the end of the Cold War. So the Cold War ends in 1989 and the U.S. basically it doesn't have a, a superpower rival or a major strategic rival in the region. Um, at the end of 1991, the um, Soviet Union even dissolved. Well, right as the Soviet Union dissolved, Algeria had parliamentary elections. So the country of Algeria, this is in the middle of North Africa, next to between Libya and Morocco. Um, Algeria had parliamentary elections, which were competitive. They were uh, they were meaningful elections, and an Islamic opposition party, known as the Islamic Salvation Front, did very well in the first round of elections. There was going to be um, a runoff. It was expected that in the runoff, they would win a majority and they would control the parliament in Algeria. Well, the Algerian military decided to intervene and preempt the runoff so that the elections would not be concluded and the result for algeria was a decade long civil war in which hundreds of thousands of people perished um so that was a really the beginning of a very very um a, a tragic chapter in algerian history well for the united states and and for the george h w bush administration which was on the one hand enjoying its uh unipolar uh, the new unipolar world that was made possible by the end of the Cold War and the, dissolve of the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was, on the other hand, also uh, thinking about a new strategic threat or what other actors might challenge American primacy. And the first Bush administration expressed a deep fear about Islamic movements like the Islamic Salvation Front taking power. And the way that Secretary of State Jim Baker's assistant put it was the United States will not accept a situation of one man, one vote, one time. Now, what he meant by that was – and the the narrative that U.S. officials gave was that if Islamists, like the Islamic Salvation Front, were elected and allowed to govern – they would then uh, stop holding any future elections so it, instead of just being kind of one man one vote the idea of uh, basic idea of suffrage universal uh, suffrage it would be one man one vote one time so essentially one free and fair election but then no more after that and there would be a new Islamist dictatorship established and that that fear of islamists taking power has continued to shape U.S. foreign policy. And in fact, it's only now really with the Obama administration's relationship with Egypt and Tunisia in the wake of the Arab uprisings that we're beginning to see some evolution beyond that mindset. But as late as 2008, when uh, Obama was running for office, members of his national security team would say, when it comes to Egypt, we can't accept a situation of one man, one vote, one time. They would essentially pick up the exact same line, the same mantra that was being said by the George H.W. Bush administration uh, nearly um, 20 years prior. And what I say in the book is that really this supposed fear of Islamist governments taking over and imposing dictatorship is disingenuous. Because if you look at U.S. relations around the region, the US, U.S. policy does not reflect a principled opposition to authoritarianism or to conservative um, Islamic rule. Uh, so just to think about authoritarianism, for instance, there the U.S. has all kinds of alliances with authoritarian regimes inside the Middle East and beyond the Middle East. So, you know whether it's the Islamic Salvation Front that that takes over and cuts off elections if they were actually going to do that, which we'll never know, um, or if it's a, a secular ruler who cuts off elections or holds phony elections like Stot or like the Algerian Junta that took over, you know, it's it's still authoritarianism. So there's no kind of uh, basis on which to say the U.S. opposes uh, the curtailing of elections or opposes um, the holding of fraudulent elections. Uh, At the same time, if you think about, well, maybe it's something about Islamists taking over or having... more, uh, more traditional religious government? Well, the U S has great relations with Saudi Arabia, which is about the most uh, traditional, uh, Islam, Islamic government that you can have. So, I mean, very, very kind of hardcore, uh, fundamentalist government in terms of the relationship between doctrine and actual legal practices. So these, I, I say, I say in the book that these arguments don't really, um, stand up to to scrutiny, and instead what the U.S. is worried about when it's thinking about opposition movements coming to power, whether in Algeria or in Egypt or in uh, the Palestinian Authority, is not a change in domestic practices, not not about authoritarianism domestically or about uh, conservative Islamic policies domestically. It's about foreign policy. It's about governments being uh more independent from the United States, more willing to go their own way, more willing to assert themselves and disagree with the united states and I cite the example of Turkey under the uh uh the AKP which has been in power since two thousand and three so the the AKP in Turkey is uh an Islamist party but it's western oriented it's it's moderate um Yet it is willing to as and has on occasion disagreed with the United States. I mean Turkey is a nato ally it's a it's a key partner of the United States uh but you know let's say ten percent of the time uh Ankara and Washington have disagree you know it's normal among allies it's normal among sovereign countries to have disagreements well, that ten percent disagreement is ten percent more than the u s ever had with Hosni Mubarak or with Anwar Sadat so the fear Uh, about Islamist governments or any type of opposition government, not just Islamist government, not just Islamist opposition. The fear of opposition movements taking power uh, is really based upon a fear of governments being more independent, an Algerian government that's more independent, a Palestinian government, let's say, that's more independent, or an Egyptian government that's more independent. And so while this mantra of one man, one vote, one time has uh, circulated uh, for two decades and has seemed to be the driving principle for U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, I argue that really there, is, uh, there are other motives uh, underneath this which relate to the U.S. fear to accept other governments pursuing a foreign policy that's independent of, of what the United States wants. And, uh, and here we come back to the voices of opposition in Egypt, which I mentioned at the very opening of the podcast, that Egyptians, say Egyptian activists, whether they're leftists or Islamists or, or right wing, they have an idea that they want their country to pursue a foreign policy that serves Egyptians, not one that serves you know, whatever people in Washington want, which is what they feel has been happening And there's great evidence that it has been happening under Mubarak and under Sadat. So it's this idea of having an Egyptian foreign policy that reflects what Egyptians want, not an Egyptian foreign policy that's run by a single autocrat and reflects what that autocrat's partners in Washington want.
1: You quote uh, Mubarak in 1999 when he was receiving an honorary degree at George Washington University, and he says, the road to democracy is a long one, and we travel it with confidence. Do you think comments like those from Mubarak were taken seriously inside of Egypt or inside uh, the U.S. administration? Uh,
0: Yeah, that, that honorary address was, you know, was interesting for me to learn of. I, I hadn't heard of it, but I was interviewing uh, the US ambassador to Egypt at the time, Daniel Kurser, and he, he brought it up. And And what he and other ambassadors whom I interviewed for the book told me is what, what they would try to do is if Mubarak talked about democracy or if the Egyptian government had laid out some policy regarding democracy, they would invoke that language from time to time to say, "Well, look, this is what you talked about. why don't you you know hold yourself to to this standard that you set out?" so I don't think it was taken i, I don't first i don't think it was taken very seriously by Egyptians. Uh, I think it it was only taken seriously by u s foreign policymakers to the extent that they could kind of use it in their conversations with Mubarak to get a little bit of leverage over him often. By the way, for other matters, um, strategic matters, not not for matters of uh, democracy within Egypt, uh, and and I would say one one way to interpret the speech by Mubarak is to just compare the rhetoric with the reality. I mean, to compare what he was saying with what he was doing in 1999, Mubarak was you know, elected, we'll put that in in scare quotes, elected for a fourth six-year term. And at that point, he had ruled longer than any of his predecessors, longer than President Gamal Abdel Nasser, longer than Sadat. And he was really, at at that point, becoming uh, what looked like a president for life. And if it hadn't been for the Egyptian uprising in 2011, I have no... Uh, no doubt that he probably would have continued ruling until close to um, the end of his days. Uh, there was n- no indication that he was going to voluntarily step aside for and in in the context of a free and fair election where the opposition could win. So I would say, yeah, take the rhetoric, um, you know, look at it, but then look at the behaviors and see whether they line up. We can do that with Mubarak's speeches. We can do that with the speeches of uh, U.S. leaders as well, uh, which. Uh, which I do when discussing the so-called freedom agenda of George W. Bush. We had the speeches where George W. Bush called on Egypt to lead the Middle East toward democracy. Um, And then we have the behaviors of the George W. Bush administration, which involved continuing to give military aid to Egypt, cooperating with Mubarak on extraordinary rendition, cooperating with him so that uh, Mubarak would assist the U.S. in prosecuting. Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So basically, all kinds of, of intelligence and security cooperation at a time where publicly Bush was calling on Mubarak to be, to be more democratic.
1: You mentioned George W. Bush and his freedom agenda, which you uh, address at length in the book. Could you talk about the two groups within the administration that you describe as uh, one being for democracy promotion and the other being for diplomacy promotion?
0: Okay, so what I found in looking at the U.S.-Egyptian relationship is that when it comes to democracy, I mean, those who invoke democracy, whether it's it's members of Congress or members of the National Security Council, uh, when they're talking about uh, democracy in Egypt, they're mainly invoking it as a way of getting leverage over the Egyptian government so that the government can cooperate more on strategic matters and regional security matters. And specifically, when it comes to Egypt, the the main issue of concern is Israeli security and related to that, security around the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula. So there were these two groups in the George W. Bush administration um, which differed about democracy promotion, mainly... uh, they differed about the extent to which democracy should be kind of raised as a way of getting leverage over the Egyptian regime. One of them, the group that you might think of as diplomacy promoters, was based mainly in the State Department, um, also to some extent, in the Pentagon and in the intelligence, uh, in the CIA and the intelligence agencies. And these were uh, for the most part career civil servants many of whom had served in the foreign service and had spent time in the middle east they had an understanding for egypt they had an understanding for egypt's relations with other re- relationships with other countries including with israel and they had a sense for public opinion in egypt and they were interested they were more interested in making progress on the Israel-Palestine conflict and uh, generally maintaining strong or improving U.S. relations with other Arab countries uh, than they were with kind of pressuring Mubarak. Now, the other group, the sort of democracy promotion crowd, tended to be from the neoconservative wing of uh, the American political spectrum. They were very concerned about Israeli security, and they wanted Mubarak to do more to improve uh, Israeli security and and to improve Israel's presence in the region and power in the region. And so, this group, which was not so concerned about domestic public opinion in Egypt, not so concerned about how Arabs in general perceived the United States, was interested in putting pressure on mubarak so that he would do more to cooperate with the united states in its goals around the region including uh, security of israel but also in prosecuting uh, the war in iraq uh, and in other areas and so this group was more enthusiastic about bringing kind of democracy to the fore to the forefront of a us public diplomacy and putting pressure on Mubarak about democracy as a way to get him to make concessions on strategic cooperation. You
1: mentioned uh, after the fall of Mubarak that uh, the Obama administration declared a pro-democracy policy, but that in fact, uh, as you say, this new chapter in American diplomacy uh, was actually old priorities repackaged. Could you talk about uh, why you feel that is?
0: Yeah. So the Obama administration's, let's talk about first the Obama administration's response to the Egyptian uprising a few weeks ago, um, which is to say, I think in late, uh, September, uh, 2012, there was a New York times article, front page New York times article. And then it, it continued for a full page and, um, inside the A section, about the, how Obama responded to the Egyptian uprising that began on January 25th, 2011. And the basic story of the article was that uh, Obama uh, struggled with responding to this threat to Hosni Mubarak, a longtime American ally, but after a lot of soul-searching, Obama decided that Mubarak had to resign And so he had a phone call with Mubarak. It was his second and last phone call to Mubarak during the 18-day uprising in which he said there must be an orderly transition uh, and it must begin now. And the way the New York Times reported it was by saying that an orderly transition must begin now, he was basically telling Mubarak he must resign. Um, We know from uh, a lot of other reporting, some of which I – Cite in my book that actually Obama was not keen on seeing Mubarak resign that could have led to even more chaos in Egypt, and certainly the Obama administration did not want to see the u s lose this crucial ally in the region, but they wanted to they wanted an exit strategy some way to Pull Egypt out of this crisis while retaining the US Egyptian alliance. And the idea they came up with was an orderly transition, a phrase that Obama and Clinton used on several occasions. And this orderly transition was going to be a way to make, to bring uh, Mubarak from the fore, foreground into into kind of the background and for him to cede his powers to his intelligence chief, who had just been appointed vice president, Omar Suleiman. Now, Omar Suleiman was probably the most popular uh, Egyptian political figure for Washington, D.C. He had been the intelligence chief for nearly two decades he was the Cairo's point man on the Extraordinary Rendition Program. He was, uh, had very good relations with Israel as well, and he would have been an ideal successor for those in Washington in terms of somebody to come after Mubarak who could have continued Mubarak's policies and perhaps even when it came to foreign policy and national security issues, pursued them more effectively than Mubarak had. So the idea was for Mubarak to recede into the background and for Omar Suleiman to become de facto president, at least until new elections could be held in September of 2011, which is when they were scheduled, and then Omar Suleiman could become actual president. So that was the plan. It was derailed because… The protests continued. The activists didn't leave Tahrir Square. They didn't go home, although Almar Suleiman told them to go home. The defense minister, who was later acting president, uh, Hussein Tantawi, also told them to go home. Uh, they didn't go home. They stayed, and eventually the military took over. Now, when the military, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, um, forced Mubarak to relinquish power, On on February 11th, 2011. Obama hailed this decision as a victory of the Egyptian people. Publicly, he embraced the outcome. And over subsequent months, Obama and Hillary Clinton have talked a lot about supporting a democratic transition in Egypt, supporting a transition to civilian rule in Egypt. Uh, they've expressed support for free and fair elections. And what's happened here is that after proactively supporting authoritarianism for decades, the U.S. has reactively accepted the beginnings of democracy in Egypt, and it Mm. has sort of done it reluctantly. Um, I mean, basically, we wouldn't be where we are today if it weren't for Egyptian protesters putting so much pressure on the Egyptian government and indirectly on the American government to change its position. So there has been an evolution in the relationship, but I would continue to say that the rhetoric coming from Washington should be measured against the behavior. Uh, you know, it's fine to say that the United States supports free and fair elections and supports a democratic transition. In terms of the actions of the Obama administration, we did not see a substantial change from Hosni Mubarak to the uh, period in which the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces was running the country, which was about for 18 months. Uh, And by... and and by, when I say that we didn't see a substantial change, I mean that we actually just continued to see support for authoritarianism. It was just a new kind of authoritarianism. It was kind of military stewardship instead of uh, Hosni Mubarak being president. But when the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces repressed people, when it, uh, when it put activists on military trials, when it uh, – um, had army vehicles running over protesters in October of, of 2011, um, killing 20-some uh, protesters when it when there was a second up, kind of small uprising and a series of battles in, in Tahrir Square again in fall of 2011. The Obama administration did not cut off military aid. It didn't use any of its significant Levers upon the Egyptian regime to try to r- reduce that repression and stop it, so there 's been this kind of the posture of well w- w- sort of w- we're not we 're not involved. this is for Egyptians to decide, um, but at the same time the u s is continuing to support the Egyptian military with tremendous aid and rather than kind of proactively helping to to empower and to strengthen civilian forces. And and one way that the U.S. could do that, which is something that Egyptians are calling for, would be to forgive the significant debt that Egypt accumulated during the Mubarak years, uh, debt to the United States, which would give a, a tremendous economic boost and could help the elected civilian government have a lot more... Uh, budgetary and discretionary power to, to operate instead of continuing to operate in the shadow of the Egyptian military
1: What do you think the lasting legacy will be of uh, US support, their history of support of Sadat, of Mubarak and also of their actions during the uh, transition period that Egypt has been going through over the past uh, couple years
0: Well I- I think the the legacy is uh, uh, politically within Egypt. It's a legacy of of devastation. I mean, there's it's there's just going to take it's going to take years to build a, a strong civil society. It's going to take years to build up uh, vibrant political parties and to establish strong traditions of. Um, Free and fair elections. Now, so far uh, um, this year, there have been a lot of um, a lot of hopeful signs uh, about a, a change from authoritarianism to uh, civilian-led democracy. The elections, which were monitored by the Carter Center, and I actually happened to be there when when they were uh, as one of the observers. The presidential elections this spring and and the runoff in June. Uh, went very well, and then subsequently, uh, elected president Mohammed Morsi sidelined the military in a very um, bold and and surprising move, and that's that's a hopeful sign for improving the power of of, of elected officials over unelected generals. But there's still a long way to go. We, we'll have to see what happens with the new constitution, uh, with the next set of elections, and we'll have to see how much the military is willing to accept civilian rule. Uh, there, the problem, the, I mean, the legacy right now is one of, of great uncertainty because there is this risk of what you might call authoritarian recidivism, basically relapsing back into authoritarianism after uh, some promising elections and some initial progress toward democracy. I, I think also the, a major legacy left by the U.S.-Egyptian alliance during the Sadat and Mubarak years is a, a vast uh, internal security apparatus, which is going to have to be gradually be dismantled, uh, you're going to have to, you know, these these employees, I mean, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of employees who were basically serving authoritarianism and, and working as informants, or or worse than that, you know, torturers, and they're going to have to be um, shifted into other uh, sectors, into some other kinds of employment, um, the their victims may also want uh, justice at some point, some type of uh, truth and, and reconciliation commission could be needed so the the legacies of authoritarianism are are bleak. Um, I think that Egyptians have made great strides during the the last nearly two years at beginning to erase some of them. Uh, but I think in the future, those who in Washington who are interested in really you know, improving and strengthening democracy in Egypt should think more deeply about what it will mean to stop participating in authoritarianism in Egypt, for, for the U.S. and its policies to undergo a transformation, uh, at least on the order of what Egyptians have been able to accomplish.
1: Back in September, President Obama, in an interview, said that Egypt is uh, neither an enemy nor an ally. It's a quote that, uh, obviously, people in the administration tried to walk back rather quickly. But what do you see as the short-term and uh, more longer-term future of the U.S. relationship with uh, Egypt under uh, Mohamed Morsi?
0: Yes yeah that was an interesting quote uh, you know that and i the state department responded in a very technical sense to assert that egypt is an ally because on the books you know in american law there's a list of countries that are called not major non nato allies and egypt is on that list and, and it's been on that list since the 1980s and being a, non, a major non-NATO ally just basically means the U.S. gets to sell uh, that country weapons and vehicles that it otherwise might not be able to receive. So really, it's a uh, it's a term that does not necessarily reflect high levels of strategic cooperation. I would say beyond the the technical term, that Egypt in in practice is absolutely a key ally during the during 2001 to 2005 when the Iraq War and, and the Afghanistan War operation and during freedom in Afghanistan were going on, Egypt was giving the U.S. military an average of twenty overflight permissions a day for U.S. vehicles to pass through Egyptian airspace. In addition to that, Egypt provides U.S. Uh, Navy vessels, including nuclear powered. Uh, uh, battleships, the ability to go through the Suez Canal uh, at an expedited rate. Essentially, they can jump to the to the head of the line, and they can avoid cumbersome uh, inspections that would slow them down. And, and then there's the tremendous amounts of intelligence cooperation that go on between Egypt and the U.S. When the U.S. wants to know about Al-Qaeda, uh, Egypt has been one of the, its chief partners in trying to uh, collect information and intelligence. So there are all kinds of ways in which they're allies. I think it was interesting about that quote that uh, that President Obama gave. Obviously, he's in the middle of a of a campaign, which has become even more uh, competitive in, in recent weeks. Uh, and I, I think because of the the uh, the demonstrations in Cairo, he didn't want to just say, "Well, oh yeah, Egypt's Egypt's an ally." Um, because he was very disappointed in the response of mohammed morsi to the to the protests and and the um the, the kind of well it's it's sort of a the mobbing uh, i i should say of the us embassy um uh, because morsi initially spoke out against the video the youtube video innocence of islam rather than speaking out against uh, the rioters uh but what he was really saying there, what Obama was saying, is not that Egypt wasn't an ally, but he was saying, at the moment, it feels like Mohammed Morsi isn't an ally. And I think it was interesting then, the, the sort of sequel to that, uh, that quote or that interaction between uh, Morsi and Obama over the riots in Cairo was Mohammed Morsi's visit to New York and his speech before the United Nations which was uh, a new marked a new page in US Egyptian relations because you begin to see what an Egyptian foreign policy that reflects Egyptian public opinion could look like i mean we've had the public opinion polling data from Egypt and other arab countries for years we know that when you poll them arabs in the region will say that they don't think iran is a threat They think Israel and the United States are the biggest threats. They think that the U.S. is motivated by concerns about oil, uh, and they don't think the U.S. is seriously pursuing Arab-Israeli peace. So they'll say all these things. Uh, They believe them. There's a lot of empirical evidence to back them up. And now those opinions are going to be reflected in top-level policymaking by people like Mohammed Morsi and other elected Egyptian politicians and other uh, elected Arab politicians in other countries. Uh, so, so you begin to see that we could have a relationship, the United States could have a relationship with Egypt, a little more like the U.S. relationship with Turkey, where there are uh, agreements 90% of the time, but disagreements uh, 10% of the time. And I think that's what Obama... And the White House and uh, Congress, when it's back in session and, and dealing with foreign policy, uh, will be coping with Like, What does it mean to deal with Egypt as an independent country that's an ally but that it has its own ideas? What does it mean for American politicians to think of Egyptian politicians not as – just cronies of Mubarak who can be pushed around, but as public servants who are representing the ideas of Egyptians. And I think there's going to be an adjustment period, and there are going to be some difficult conversations uh, between Egyptians and Americans, and, and I hope among Americans, because for decades the United States has been able to take Egypt for granted. It's been able to assume that because there is a... And an autocrat in charge who is dependent on the United States for support that Egypt will do whatever the United States wants. And now the U.S. is co- having to cope with the fact that Egypt is a sovereign country. Egyptians have their own ideas and they feel that their foreign policy has not served their country's interests uh, very well under uh, the prior presidents. And they want um, a relationship of, of reciprocity with the United States and of, of mutual respect.
1: Well, Jason, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, before I let you go, could you talk briefly about uh, any projects you're currently working on?
0: Glad to. I'm, um, I'm currently beginning to look at the relationship between U.S. companies uh, – oil companies as well as weapons manufacturers at their relationship with regimes in the Middle East and how that played out during the Arab uprisings. So you could say that in terms of building on what I did in democracy prevention, I'm now going to try to look at the money underneath the strategic interests. So the ways in which the U.S. uh, is driven by... American companies and domestic constituencies to get involved in the – to get involved and remain involved in the Middle East.
1: That sounds uh, very interesting and hopefully I'll uh, get a chance to chat with you again when that's completed. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Well, thank you again for taking the time today. Hey, thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. And thanks again to Jason Brownlee for taking the time to talk about his new book, Democracy Prevention, The Politics of the U.S.-Egyptian Alliance. You can follow New Books in Middle Eastern Studies on Twitter, where we are at NewBooksMideast, and also on Facebook, as well as through our website, NewBooksInMiddleEasternStudies.com, where you can find links to our show. To send me your comments, or to suggest an author or book for a future show, you can use the contact information on our website. Also, if you enjoy the show's please consider taking a moment to rate or review them on iTunes, which will help more people find our shows. Thank you for listening.